Um, yeah, so my day got made when some random well-dressed hipster on the subway said to me, and I quote, nice kicks. So I am riding high today. Um, yeah, so honored to be here, really privileged to speak in this pulpit, as it were. Um, Roland is, I count him as a close friend, mentor, great man. We've known each other for 18 years now, going back to our undergrad days at UNC. So thank you all for receiving me. Um, it's always kind of special that we're, my wife and I are doing a three weeks early uh, anniversary celebration here. <laughs> we, we've always had teenagers in tow for missions trips or our own kids in tow. And we're like, we've never actually gotten to be in Chicago together and just enjoy the city. So um, she's sitting here in the front row. I'll be happy to introduce you all afterwards if you'd like to, to meet her. So um, the series that y'all have been in, and I discerned this from Instagram, I didn't get a word from the Lord or anything, but was the names of God, and so it fit really perfectly, and I wanted to introduce the, uh, uh, the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah Sabaoth, um, and this is from, uh, from the, the translation is uh, the Lord of hosts. Now, a lot of the times, this gets translated as armies, or, uh, but it also uh, can mean the Lord of multitudes, of many. Um, and really the, the image that I wanted to speak about today was from Revelation chapter 9. Um, I'll just reference it. We don't need to read it. But it's that um, it's a passage where John, the, one of the followers of Jesus, he's now you know, an old man on the island of Patmos where God gives him this vision of, of the end of days. And uh, at one point, um, God shows John a multitude, it says, which no, which no one could count. Um, clothed in white from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they called out with one voice and says, salvation belongs to the, to the lamb and he who is on the throne. Um, and so this image that it conjures up is that it's referred to uh, in another point of Revelation where it says that Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is worthy because he purchased, he bought men and women from every tribe and tongue and language. Um, with his own with his own death with his own blood and so that's reflected here you know I'm, I'm sure many of you were drawn to this church because it intentionally reflects that notion that God sent Jesus not just to redeem the Jews uh, but to redeem people from all over the world that God is not a regional God he's not God of that one little sect or corner of the Middle East um, but that God from even from Abraham's day God said that I'm going to bless every nation on the earth through you um, and through your offspring. And so that's really what I wanted to talk about today is that if God is the God of multitudes, if he's the God of the crowds, how does he plan on accomplishing it? What, is, what does it look like how, how when God reaches out to the multitudes? Um, and so what I'd like to do right now is, as, by way of looking at how God accomplishes this, I want to look at the story of Peter, one of the very first followers of Jesus. Um, he's the one that... Even if you've never read the Bible, you might have heard about Peter's the one that denied Jesus three times, and um, he's also one of the founders of the early church, and how he met a man named Cornelius, who is a, a soldier of Rome. He was a centurion. So this is Acts chapter 10. Um, Acts, I'm, I'm a history buff, and so I can't help but I want to give some context. The book of Acts is sort of actually a sequel to the book of Luke, if you didn't know. They're both written by the same person to the same person. And if Luke tells the story about Jesus' life, Acts is telling the story of what happened with the early church immediately following Jesus' resurrection. And so this is, at, this is written at a time where it was thought, even by the followers of Jesus, that Christianity, you know, it wasn't even known as Christianity back then. It was called, uh, they were called followers of the way. 
Um, but it was thought that this was a, still a Jewish thing, and it was thought that Jesus had come to fulfill God's promises to the Jewish people. And it's important to kind of know that background because you'll kind of understand the weight of this story a little bit more. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's a high-ranking officer. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. It's a common theme, right? People are scared of angels showing up in their bedroom. You would be too. So, said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms, your gifts, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one called Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance or a vision. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. If you don't know, the Jewish people had sort of a restrictive diet. No bacon, no shrimp, no shellfish. Sad times. So, and the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Um, This happened three times. And then the sheet was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said to him, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up too, I too am only a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I then asked why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging by the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, Therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality or favor, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened all throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all he did, both in the country of Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles or the non-Jews. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And would you pray with me? Um, God, please help us as we study your word. Would you teach us? Would you change us? Most importantly, would you change us, Jesus? Would you conform us to your likeness today? We pray this in your name. Amen. So I, have, I do apologize. Usually you don't read 48 verses of scripture. But the whole story, um, really, I hope, I hope you, you know, some of you who are aware kind of of the story know where this is going. But um, to kind of frame it, I'm going to go back to my youth pastor roots. I'm almost incapable of preaching without a video clip. So here's something I wanted to... Uh, this is from a few years ago when the Boston Bruins and the Montreal Canadiens were facing off in the Stanley Cup Finals. We asked Montreal fans just how much they love the world's most famous hamburger. Est-ce que vous aimez le Big Mac? Oui. 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 Des amateurs de Big Mac? Ah oui, on aime ça. Qu'est-ce que tu serais prêt à faire pour un Big Mac? Je vous ferais une belle danse. Go, let's go! Seriez-vous prêt à faire un câlin à Steno Charles? Pas sûr. Un mangro, là. Hello! Hey, guys! Ah! Ben oui! How are you? Come on, guys. Show some love. You want a big, big hug? Well, if you want a big, big man. All right. Uh, oh, nice. 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 I tried and tried to find something like that for Cubs Indians from last year, but I just couldn't. And if, if you can't find it on YouTube, it probably doesn't exist. Um, so the premise of that, right, is funny enough. If, you know, it's like taking two people that, that are supposed to be at odds, right, is that you got Canadians fans asking, being asked, would you be willing to hug the captain of the opposing team if we gave you a Big Mac? And they're like, oh, baby. And, you know, they, pay, they just suffer through it. And, uh, of course, I mean, the Big Mac's kind of a mediocre sandwich when you realize it's just Thousand Island dressing. Uh, but that's, that's the idea. It's like, hey, if all it takes is a Big Mac and enemies can be reconciled together. Now, 
um, to expand that and blow that up, we, we have to kind of know what was going on in the Jewish time here where this story takes place, where you have Peter and Cornelius. Um, the Romans were not, you know, it's... Well, the Romans were an occupying military force. Um, you know, without making too much commentary, it's like any time where you have a native population being governed and violently subjugated by a foreign military force. That is essentially the backdrop for the Jews and the Romans and their relationship with each other. Um, and for someone like Peter, who, you know, Peter was the one who, when, they, when the Romans came to arrest Jesus along with the, you know, the temple guards before Jesus was crucified, Peter's the one who stole a sword out of somebody's scabbard and, and took it and hacked at the head of one of the servants of the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus, cut his ear off. So you get a sense that Peter is zealously devoted to Jesus to the point where he's willing to execute violence on Jesus' behalf. And so for Peter, who at one point believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, not, you know, at that point they didn't think that Jesus was all about forgiveness and resurrection. They thought that Jesus was going to restore Israel to its place of prominence as the, as the most powerful military kingdom on the planet. You know, they're remembering the glory days of King David when country, whole nations would just flee before Israel or bow to them and submit to them. And they thought Jesus was going to be that commander because, I mean, he can calm storms and he can raise the dead and he can glue people's ears back on. Surely he's the one that's going to lead the armies of Israel to restore. The, that's why they kept on asking him, well, is, is it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Should we call down fire on those Samaritans? And, and the disciples had this image of Jesus as a political savior. And so even now, like, that's, that's the backdrop. And so that's why it's so miraculous when they can talk about a high-ranking Roman military official being respected and honored by the Jewish people. Think about what that would take, right? And so before we get too far ahead of ourselves, is that what we see early on in the story is that Peter definitely was devoted to Jesus and therefore to God as well. And Peter was, you know, even we, we pick up, and when we pick up Peter in the story, he is doing what? Y'all can talk back to me. It's okay. What was Peter doing when we meet him in this story? He was praying. He was at the normal hour of prayer for the day. He's up on the roof. Um, and so he's, he's doing, I mean, he's having this quiet time, basically, right? He's like Peter is, you know, he's got his Bible open. If, you know, he might not have had his own copy, but he's, he's going through his spiritual disciplines, right? Interestingly enough, so was Cornelius. And when Cornelius is introduced in the story, he is at the third hour or at the ninth hour of the day. He was praying. So what we find is that both of these men were devoted to God. Right? What does it say of Cornelius? It says that Cornelius was a devout man. He feared God. It says that he gave generously to those who were poor and those who were in need. It said he prayed regularly. So this is a man who, who loves and honors God, but it's it's like he doesn't, I guess, know God in the sense that we do, right? I love that poor Jen's over there, at, you know, during worship. It's almost like she was apologetically looking at me when she wanted to teach on worship. I was like, you kidding? As a worship leader, I'm like, yes, go. This is, this is what we're about here, is knowing God and communing with him, of hearing his voice in our spirit, man. And so this is what, you know, we, we know God because we know that Jesus is the person who has come down and made it 
possible for us to know God because he died for us. He forgave us. His resurrection proved that we have a resurrection waiting for us. Cornelius, though, is not quite there. He fears God, loves him, serves him, but he hasn't quite gotten to that place of knowing God through Jesus yet. But you see, as the story unfolds, we see that is God's design for this. He's chosen, think about, think about the honor that God is bestowing on Cornelius. God has ordained that this man would essentially be the first Gentile house church leader. What an honor, right? Is that this, this sect of Judaism, which, I mean, I wonder, I wonder even, and this is, so we're, we're kind of stepping out of what I can prove in Scripture into my opinion and conjecture, but I wonder if Cornelius was kind of an underground convert to Judaism. There's enough evidence there that I can say that, and just if I'm wrong, I'm like, well, it was, a, it was a good guess. But what we see is that he was honored by the Jews and respected by them, that he was following a Jewish prayer schedule, that he followed this code of ethics and conduct that is much more common to Judaism than to Roman paganism, right? Is that the Roman God, especially a military commander, anybody up on Roman mythology, who would a Roman military commander most likely worship in the Roman pantheon? Mars, right? The god of war. Not a god of generosity, of gentleness, of giving, of healing, of provision. That might even be seen as a, a sign of weakness or a lack of virility and strength. But so that's why I'm saying I think it's possible that he was kind of a low-key convert to Judaism. But what an honor God bestows on him in that he, he coordinates these visions, right? These supernatural moments where it takes two radical visions to get these two together. But what they had in common first was that they both knew God. They both honored God. They served him. They, I think if you had asked Cornelius at the time, like, is, is, is God the Lord of your life? Oh, absolutely. I obey him. I serve him. This is how I practice my faith. And so... I say that because just like, you know, in the, in the McDonald's commercial, right, is that you have to be bribed to love your enemy, right? You have to, you know, our, our selfish nature, our conflict nature is going to win out most of the time. Um, and so just like, you know, you have to toss a Big Mac to a Canadian fan to get him to hug the Boston captain. There has to be something higher than ourselves that we have bowed our need to before we can really be reconciled to each other. This is possibly one of, like, if, if there's a message that the church has to trumpet and champion today, it's that what, in, in the turmoil that's going on in our country, and realistically, guys, we, we are getting a, a, a blip, a taste of what most of the world experiences when we talk about political turmoil and instability and hatred between neighbors. Like, we're still kind of on the softer end of things. But it, in the like, what we really want, what's chased after is this idea of unity and togetherness and uh, and and peace between each other. And what we're finding is that no, our our sinful nature, our brokenness, our selfish ambitions, are always too powerful for our desire for unity to overcome. If the desire for unity is all that's really there. This is why God had to choose two people who were already submitted to him, with knees bowed to him. Peter and Cornelius have no power in and of themselves to facilitate this friendship and union. And Peter even admits it. He says, it's unlawful. You know it's unlawful for me 
to come under your roof or to even associate with you or to even share a meal with you because it makes me unclean according to my law. And we hear more from Peter's end because you know, he's, the, he's the church man you know, welcoming the Romans in. But think about Cornelius too. Think about, think about the humility that it takes for this. Oh, I skipped over this. Can we put up that second slide? It says God reconciles us to each other because we're kind of into this now. So we've established that God has to first draw us to himself. You must be submitted. You must be reconciled to God before he can use you. But once you are, once you know God, once you've been brought into fellowship with your creator, once you've been forgiven, once you've been cleaned, once you've been made whole and right again, God immediately, his, his first task is now I want you to reconcile to each other. And so think about Cornelius and the humility it takes for this, this commander of the <laughs> occupying conquering military force to submit himself to this Jew. And it's actually, you know, the, the big moment is when, you know, Peter comes into the house and what does Cornelius do? He falls down, he kneels, and he starts worshiping Peter, right? Because I think he sees Peter as like the emissary of God, almost like a, like a pope-type figure. And he falls to his feet and he starts worshiping. Peter's like, no, no, I'm just a man. I'm just like you. There's nothing special about me. But the, the one that I like earlier that I, that, uh, I stole this, somebody else pointed this out to me, but... Um, the men that Cornelius sends when they get to the house in, in Joppa, they stand at the, at the outer gate of the house and they call out and say, Is Peter there? Simon, he's called Peter. Is he staying here? They stand at the outer gate, not even knocking at the door. They stand at afar because what does Cornelius already know about Jewish people? He knows that, like, it's I am going to make them unclean if I come past the threshold of their house. Now, Cornelius, in his rights as a conqueror, as a political dominus, as a lord in that society, he has every right to go, if he wants to, and just kick Peter's door down and say, come with me now. He has that right. He has that ability. He has the, the right to even, if he wanted to, he could make... He could ride Peter's mule and say, and carry my pack for me. I don't know if you all remember this reference when Jesus was talking about how to practically love one another. He says, anyone that makes you carry a load for one mile, carry it a second mile for them. Don't just do what you're obligated to do by law, but go, go twice as much as you're obligated to to demonstrate love for that enemy of yours. And so Cornelius, the enemy of the Jew, right, as far as they were concerned, had the right to compel Peter to come by strength of arms, to send his soldiers and say, look, if he doesn't want to come, you drag him out, and I'll deal with him when he gets here. But instead, Cornelius demonstrates real and vulnerable humility, and he stands at the gate, he stands at the threshold and calls out. And on Peter's side of things, he actually has to tell the Holy Spirit, speak to him and say, look, three guys are looking for you. Don't fear, go with them. Now, why, why would God need to tell Peter, don't be afraid? What does it usually mean when Romans come looking for Jews? 
Yeah, like, it doesn't usually end well, like, right? There, there's, there's already been this persecution, right? Peter is most likely where he is because the Christians in Jerusalem have been scattered by this great persecution that's broken out. Actually started by Paul, another guy who we meet later in Acts, one of the other church leaders. That's kind of cool how Peter and Paul get connected and, and united later. But there's been this massive persecution where people are getting stoned and killed and thrown into prison. So there's the Romans out there, and Peter's like looking out the window. Really, those guys? One of them's got a sword. You want me to go with them? Like, I know what happened to Jesus when he went with them. So God says, no, don't be afraid. So he says, "Uh, hey, guys, uh, what you need? Then they tell this story. Like, hey, this is good. I I wonder if the guy telling the story was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. So our boss, Cornelius, he's a Roman soldier. He had this dream where an angel told him that you were staying here and we should come get you. And Peter's like, oh, there's something going on here. Okay, uh, well, let's go. But you see what had to happen. Like both of these guys had to have supernatural visions from God to get them connected so that Peter didn't like go out the underground tunnel you know, and escaping out of Simon the Tanner's house. Like, he steps out the front door and goes with these guys. Now, sorry, my notes are, you guys are figuring out, my notes are more for you than for, more for me than for you. So, there we go. Oh, yeah, that was the, the one I wanted to say. So I had this, this image, because, of course, pastors love alliteration, is that you've got the power of Cornelius the centurion and the piety of Peter that both have to be overcome. Like, I'm not saying power versus piety as, like, positive attributes. Is that Cornelius has to, in humility and in submission to God, he has to lay down the power that's his by rights. He has to put it aside in order to stand at the gate and to kneel before Peter and to ask instead of command. Peter, he has his piety, right? The Jews are the chosen people of God. The Gentiles are the ones that are on the outside. And if they, if, if they're willing to submit to the law of Moses and change their diet and not wear polycotton blends and not work on Sundays and get circumcised, big issue back then. It's like if you're, if you're willing to do all these things, perhaps God might welcome you into the family of God. And that's why they, like, this is why everyone was amazed when in the, did y'all notice that there was no like altar call or explanation or purple book class or Bible study? Peter's in the middle of a sermon and the Holy Spirit falls on the room. And he's even like, oh, uh, I think we should just baptize him. He's like, I, they like, look, they, This is what makes me think that maybe Cornelius was already a believer and he just needed to hear the good news and his heart and his whole family were just ready to receive it because they kind of did things out of order. Normally, in America, you get born again, which is where you come to the altar, which is the steel bar, I guess, here, and you say the sinner's prayer and you say, God, I confess I'm a sinner. Uh, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you stand ready to forgive, that you rose from the dead, and Jesus, will you... Will you forgive me and, 
and God, I, I commit to follow you with my whole life. And then you get water baptized after you read like chapters 3 and 4 of the Purple Book to make sure you understand baptism. Um, then you get water baptized in Lake Michigan, and then maybe we'll pray for you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that God would pour out some sort of spiritual gift on you. And they just got it all out of order. They got baptized in the Holy Spirit first. I mean, I think they believed first. Because did you notice it, this happened right when Peter said, and we know that God gives forgiveness to everyone who believes on the name of Jesus? And immediately, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And so the best case, best case scenario, they believed, immediately got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, well, can we really keep them from getting baptized? Like, they, they got the stuff. They're doing the stuff that we did. And so, yeah, go ahead. And so Peter said, like, he said he commanded them to be baptized. Like, we, we can't let this go any longer. Dunk them. They've got everything they need. They believe the Holy Spirit's been poured out on them. We see the evidence. But this is not accomplished without the two of them laying down. And this is the the key part here that I wanted to end. I didn't really get this until... I can't remember what you guys were singing, but it was that, oh, you cause all things to grow. You guys were singing that. And what immediately came to mind... Because this story is a story of the growth of the church. I don't know what overwhelming percentage of the Christian church today are Gentiles, but it's big. Because most of the world was Gentiles. And this is where it started. If you're a Gentile, if you're a non-Jew in this room today, you owe your faith to God, obviously, but to this moment where Cornelius and Peter obeyed in humility. And what I meant when I said God causes all things to grow, what in, in all of nature, what always precedes growth, or I should say, what always precedes new life and birth and growth? Death. Death precedes growth all the time. Jesus talked about this when he said, look, if you take a seed, and he's holding up maybe a mustard seed or a barley seed, He said, this seed will always be a seed unless it dies. A seed yields a plant because it gives itself to the earth and dies. It's literally split open and gives what's inside of it so that a plant can come in its place. What's happening here is that Peter and Cornelius are allowing the most precious, treasured, central parts of themselves to die in order that the church may grow. Peter is laying down his Jewishness, which again, I can't overstate the risk and the fear that he must have felt in coming, because he's the leader of the church. He's the bishop. He's the guy in Jerusalem. And he's making himself unclean by stepping into a Gentile's home. So he had to wonder, like, are they, like, is anybody going to ever listen to me again? Am I going to be part of the church still if people find out? And so he let his Jewishness die in that moment. Cornelius let his position and his power and his influence and potentially his rank die for the sake of honoring what God had told him to do. 
And this is what, if, if we are serious about God reconciling us to one another, if your heart for this city is to see people not only brought to Jesus, but to be united in fellowship under him with one another, what you are offering yourself to is you're offering God the most precious and core parts of yourself to be killed off so that Jesus can come more alive in you. Jesus even drove this point home a couple times. There was one time where he, his ministry is really gaining steam and people are saying, well, Jesus, I want to follow you too. I just have to fill in the blank, right? One guy says, uh, I just got married and uh, I'd like to you know, spend my traditional first year with my wife and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus says, if you're going to look back, your hand isn't fit to, to plow into the kingdom of God with me. One guy says, my dad just died. Just let me go and bury him. And then I'll come back and follow you. And Jesus kind of mean in that moment. But he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. He said something like this later where he says, look, if you don't hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters because of me, then you're not, you're not fit for the kingdom. You're not a true disciple. Now, of course, Jesus is being hyperbolic here. You know, he's... he's He's not going to go outside of the law. He's not saying start to dishonor your father and mother, but he is saying the parts of you that you consider, if there's anything that you'll give up, or rather anything that you won't give up when I call you, we can't start this. You can't start following me if at the outset you're saying, well, Jesus, I want to follow you, but um, I'm not going to give up my heritage. Jesus is saying, no, I'm sorry. That's not good enough. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I, I have to maintain my political affiliation. Jesus says, no, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Jesus, I, I, I'll follow you, but my family is really, really important to me. I want to live close to them. Jesus says, no, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Practically speaking, in America, honestly, you're, you're never going to have to give up anywhere close to what historical saints through the ages have had to give up. Most of you are never going to shed blood. Most of you are never going to have to actually turn away from family. Some of you might, though. Some of you in this room already have. Some of you have had relationships broken irreparably because of following Jesus. Some of you have gotten physically wounded and hurt. Some of you have lost jobs and promotions for the sake of Jesus. And all I can say is, well done. I can say from the depths of me to those of you who have lost, well done. But it is what Jesus has called, still calls us to, and will continue calling us to. He always and everywhere calls Christ followers to die in order to follow him more closely. We think, of, you know, when Jesus said, um, you know, if any of you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And the, the phrase, oh, that's my cross to bear, has be, like, that's a, everybody hear, heard that phrase in here before? Like, oh, it's just my cross to bear. That phrase has become so common as such a, like a, a, a well-understood idiom here that we've forgotten what it actually means. His disciples back then would have understood, the more modern rendering would have been, Jesus saying, if any of you wish to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Sit in the electric chair and follow me. 
If any of you wish to follow me, you have, you commit yourself to the gas chamber daily and follow me. The carrier cross thing was understood as a reference to a death sentence. Because somebody who was carrying their cross had already been sentenced and they were toting that cross to the place where they were going to be executed on it. So the force of that phrasing of taking up your cross ought not be lost on you. That there's real sacrifice and loss to be had. And so thirdly, God says, in the same way that he says to Cornelius and Peter, says God sends us to the world. Because right at, we're not going to read it because I already subjected you to 48 scripture verses, but right after this, it says that those, those believers uh, from Jerusalem heard about what had happened in the home of Cornelius. And it says they went to Antioch and preached specifically to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And in that story it says, and at their preaching, many believed and turned to Jesus and followed him. And in the city of Antioch, shortly after this interaction with Jesus, or sorry, with Peter and Cornelius, it says, at Antioch is where the followers of the way were first called Christians. It was non-Jewish believers, non-Jewish followers, who were given the title that we all sit under today, Christians, little Christs. But to drive the point home, it's the people that are not like you, the people who make your blood boil, the people who make you the angriest, the people that you are most naturally at enmity with are the very people that God is saying, yes, them. Go to them. God could have picked any number of Gentiles. He could have picked a merchant or he could have picked a, he could have picked a religious Gentile, like a, you know, a priestess of Diana or something like that. Somebody who already had like some religious consciousness but maybe picked the wrong team. He could have picked another, a Greek fisherman, somebody that Peter could have connected with culturally. God selected a Gentile that Peter had nothing in common with except a Y chromosome. God picked the person on the farthest possible end of the spectrum of humanity from Peter and said, this is the guy that I'm going to connect you with. That's who I want you to go to. The guy who you fear and hate and loathe and whose very uniform symbolizes everything that you believe God opposes. Go to his house and preach the gospel to them. Now without... My examples of who that is for me isn't going to do you as well as the examples of people that are coming to your mind right now. There's pictures of types of people. There's even pictures of specific people coming to your mind. The people C.S. Lewis describes those people as there's some person in your life on whom all your plans for happiness are constantly shipwrecked. Beautiful phrasing. There is a person or a people in your life on whom all your plans for happiness are constantly shipwrecked. There's two lessons to be learned from that. One, you are that person for somebody else. And it's for a reason that you are not even aware of. And one, and another, you are that person to God. This is what it means that it says we were all once enemies of God, is that we have shipwrecked God's plans for happiness with our sin and rebellion. And this is why we first have to be reconciled to God, because when we 
behold the holiness and perfection of God. And we sense his goodness and mercy that even though his right is to squash us out of existence, that God humbled himself and became a person and lived a perfect life and died an undeserved death and rose from the dead to prove that he's capable of saving us. When you behold all that and understand it and apprehend it and believe it and reorient your life because of it, now we can turn to our neighbor and in mercy say, Oh, just as in Jesus God forgave me, I want to be reconciled to you and I want to show you this God that loves you. Then the fourth slide, I I just said rinse and repeat (laughs) because that's the whole pattern. The entire work of the church is that cycle worked over and over and over again in one person after another. And it is shown to us in Peter and Cornelius, for I believe in this story God is calling us to say, don't just go for the people like you. What God showcases here is consider the person that is so far from you by every measurable quantity that you cannot possibly conceive that they would come to Jesus, and certainly not through your ministry or preaching or friendship or extending an invitation. It's a simple pattern that God saves you. He reconciles you to other people. He sends you together to the world that other people might be drawn to know God and reconciled to one another and sent to the world that still more might be drawn to know God and be reconciled to each other and sent to the world. That's the whole work of the church. That's what we're called to. And I want to again submit to you that what Jesus calls us to daily is to die. It's to say, God, what what part of me today needs to die so that you can live? What part of me needs to decrease so that you can increase? So I want to pray for us now. Um, And I do say us because, God, start with me. Start with my heart, God. Would you show us right now, God? Would you, in your mercy... Would you in your mercy, God, show us? Show us which part of us that you would put to sleep so that it could be raised to newness in your image. Jesus, what part of us must decrease and go away so that you can increase in us? Father, even as we even as we believe and trust, would you would you help our unbelief and our mistrust? Would you help us to even as you've shown us what what even now our our flesh, uh, the coward within us, rises up and say that's impossible. There's no way. God, would you help us to hear our spirit man agree with you and say yes, it's possible. Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Yes, I'll believe that you can do that. Yes, Jesus, I believe you can accomplish that in me. God, would you honor yourself and your name? We just pray with, Jesus, we echo your prayer. We pray that you would glorify your name through us. 
for your namesake in this city and beyond, Jesus. We pray you would glorify yourself in our lives, in our words. We pray that you would fill our mouths, that we would speak about you boldly, that we would speak your word in faith and in trust, that your, your word never goes out and comes back useless, God. You always accomplish you always accomplish the purpose that you've designed your word for. Um, God, we, help us, we ask that you would help us love this city, um, love our friends, love our family, love our neighbors, even as we love ourselves and love you. And that we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.